0: So immigration has been a big concern lately and has been for several years with lots of argument and struggle over this, especially in the United States and Europe where a lot of migrants want to go. But in all this conversation, it seems to me like almost everyone is missing the main point, which is that climate change is happening. So a lot of smart scientists predict that within the next 50 years, large parts of the earth will be too hot for humans to live. And those places currently have 2 billion people living there. And that's out of our current world population of almost 8 billion people. So that means that one out of four people on this crowded earth need to find somewhere else to live or else die. Where are we going to put that many people? So in today's show, That's what we're going to focus on and try to get this public conversation directed toward what we actually need to pay attention to. And let's see if we can get solutions on an international basis that are on the scale of the problem that we're facing. And it's a big problem, so we better get started. Let's dig in. This is the joy of saving the human race, where we try to get the world to cooperate It's so the human race can avoid some urgent, global problems that could mean the end of civilization and cause lots of suffering around the world. But also, we just want to have a good world that we enjoy and we can feel proud of. We are not just citizens of our own countries, we are citizens of the human race. Let's learn to manage ourselves responsibly. Let's help the human race act like it wants to last for a while. I think humans are awesome and the human race is worth saving. There is no time to waste, so let's do this. I'm Shelby Murtis. Thanks for joining me today. I'm doing this series of episodes just by myself, offering some information and ideas on why I think we need more international cooperation in the world and i believe we need this because we have very serious threats facing humanity that could face us with extinction or civilization collapsing or just some really painful suffering that could happen if we don't take charge of some problems soon so um in the future we'll have guests on the show that i'll be interviewing but for right now you just got me offering some things So with this general theme of threats against humanity, um, you might be surprised that today I'm going to talk about migration and refugees, which so far has not been seen as a big existential threat. I mean, people have had some arguments about it and there's been issues about it, but um, we're in the middle of an issue right now where it's about to change and intensify as climate change gets worse. So we expect that even if we get our emissions under control, climate change will continue because we've already got our carbon dioxide up in the atmosphere Um, that's warming the planet. And we have the planet right now warmer than it has ever been since humans have gotten out of the last ice age 12,000 years ago. So basically, um, we're in brand new territory where we don't quite know what the world is going to look like with this amount of warming and so as that happens it's going to cause a lot of people to move from where they currently live and that's about to happen on a scale that humanity has not seen we have not seen this many people moving from place to place before so you know so far Um, Migration has been one of those things that gets argued about or framed in morality terms, like maybe we should take in more immigrants because it's the right thing to do um, for them to help out these poor people who are suffering. And that's all still valid. But now we're entering this new territory where it's not just a moral issue. It's a practical issue, and it's an issue of self-interest because the world is about to get overwhelmed by the numbers of people moving place to place. So it just takes on a new level of importance now going forward because really it's in our self-interest for all of us on the entire planet to deal with this issue or else some things are really going to fall apart on us. So, and as we do this work of avoiding catastrophe, I hope that we can also make a better world that we can be proud of, which includes helping our neighbors, which in many places we try to do. We try to help the people around us in our community. Um, and I think in the world, that's also a good value that we should aspire to. So, so let's just look at some facts and look at what the future holds for us. So it's expected that if we follow our current, uh, trajectory with climate change, that by the year 2050, 150 million people will be displaced by rising sea levels. So this is just purely the water rising in the oceans. Um, 150 million people, that's a lot of people. Just for context, that's 18 times the size of New York City's population. So that would be New York City flooding and we have to move all those people and find them homes. And do that 18 times. Um, New York is a very large city. so. Um, we should get working on that, I think, making some plans, but there's other things about to happen that actually make that seem small. Um, there's recent studies, a couple of them showing that on our current trajectory, if we don't reduce greenhouse emissions very soon, that in the next 50 years, we'll have 1.8 billion people living in places that are as hot as today's Sahara Desert, and maybe more than 1.8 billion. So right now, the Sahara Desert, um, or deserts of this amount of heat, um, consume about 1% of the land surface on Earth. So as warming continues, this is expected to grow to 20% of the Earth's land, about one-fifth of the land on earth being too hot for people to live in. So just for context today's Sahara Desert is the size of, of the United States in terms of land area but only 2.5 million people live there. So only two and a half million people live there because it's an incredibly difficult place to live. It's hard to grow food, um, water is scarce. When this amount of very hot place grows in the planet you're gonna find these 1.8 billion people growing uh, living where like it'll be hard to be outside for more than a couple hours because that will be dangerous to people's health they'll overheat if they're outside for more a couple hours which makes it pretty hard to farm makes it pretty hard to do construction or other outside labor Um, and it's a pretty bleak situation when people have to just hide inside um, for their safety but you know perhaps even bigger than that is that uh, crops won't grow you know you just can't grow food in places that are that hot and so food will become scarce and people could starve. There's also water becoming scarce because water evaporates when it's hot. And so um, and people will try to use more water in order to grow their food and places could run out of water. So 1.8 billion people being short on food and water, um, over one-fifth of the Earth's land surface, that's a pretty dire situation. Uh, that's bigger than humanity has ever faced before in terms of that amount of potential death and that amount of um, potential people moving place to place. So, this area, this one fifth of the world, will happen around the equator where it's the hottest. So, that will include the 1.2 billion people that currently live in India. That will include Central Africa, the Middle East, Pakistan, Indonesia, uh, Northern Australia, half of South America, plenty of uh, half of South America, plenty of Central America. Um, this whole ring of heat around the world. So, it's important for us to be good at math if we want to be good citizens. And if you're not a math person, I encourage you to just try to dig into that a little bit because we have to understand the difference between thousands and millions and billions like for us to really appreciate the numbers. I've met a lot of people who, like, when you talk about numbers and there's a few zeros on it, their eyes start to glaze over and they can't quite appreciate how big it is. But when we're talking billions of people with a B. It's just simply enormous. So we're talking, you know, the the world population right now is 7.8 billion. So these number of potentially displaced people, that's one in three, maybe one in four people on Earth being unable to safely live where they are right now. So by comparison with New York City again, which holds 8.3 billion million people, you would have to displace New York City 217 times to equal this amount of displacement of people. I, I don't know how to do that, <laughs> or at least not instantly. Um, so I think we should get working so these numbers i'm sharing with you also that's based on current population in these places it is possible that population could grow in the next 50 years Uh, birth rate could increase so world population of humans is growing anyway but there's also this um this dynamic that happens where In situations of intense poverty birth rate can often go up and I believe this is that it compensates for the number of people that are dying and it compensates for the number of children who are not living through to adulthood so families end up having more babies in order to compensate for this so That 1.8 billion that I described, that's just based on current population. So there's really the potential for, you know, over two billion people to be faced with this situation. One of the ways that this can hurt all of us is by um, really damaging our world economy. So we have an internet interconnected international economy where we're all linked together. And all the people in this heat zone matter. I don't want to dismiss anybody, but just consider India. There's one country among that that has 1.2 billion people. It's the second most populous country in the world. It's the world's third largest economy. Can we actually lose India without it plunging the world into an economic depression? I I don't think we can do that Um, so one of the steps in this process that will happen as the world heats up is even before or or alongside the movement of people from country to country even within countries a lot of people are going to move so Currently, the world's population that relies on farming to make a living, they're going to give up on farming. And in some places, they already are as weather starts to change. So it becomes harder to grow crops, harder to make a living, and people give up on it. And so then they move to the city. So... Over time, there's been a migration of people from rural areas to cities, but that's going to intensify. And so it can really overwhelm some cities, especially in poor countries that don't have the resilience and the resources to adapt to that change. So worldwide, by the year 2030, uh, people expect that 40% of the, cities, uh, the city dwellers across the world will live in slums. Out of all the cities in the world, 40% of those people in slums. These are people living in tight quarters, in substandard housing, with poor sanitation, no clean drinking water. Um, That is all ripe for pandemics. So disease pandemics are just going to run through these slums. um, And as we know, that transcends country borders and that hurts all of us. Also, this dynamic of people moving to the cities in large numbers could destabilize some governments as they're unable to provide services for these people and keep them safe, give them jobs um, and economic opportunity. So this movement of people will be destabilizing. There also will be other types of displacement in addition to just the heat. So... As climate change intensifies, more wars are likely because countries may compete over resources such as scarce water and scarce food, and um, that violence could cause people to move. Also with climate, we can expect more storms. So with more hurricanes and typhoons and such leveling places, um, and they have trouble rebuilding, that also will be a source of people moving. So what we're up against is potentially two billion people having to either pick up and move somewhere else or stay where they're at and die or encounter tremendous suffering. So two billion people, What I, my concern going forward is that wealthier countries, countries farther from the equator, farther from these hot zones, That they're gonna panic and try to just block everybody out. And I don't know that that's even possible. Like, just imagine the size of a military you would need to block two billion people. Do we have military big enough? Can we build enough walls to keep out two billion people? You'd have to build walls around the entire planet, It, it would be pretty ridiculous. But my fear is if we don't get better at dealing with these issues, that's what some countries will try to do. And I'm worried that the world might waste many billions of dollars trying to block people out instead of actually fixing the problem with those resources. So what gives me that Worry about that is that the world so far has not learned how to deal with migration and refugees Um, It's been a source of conflict and we just haven't managed it well. So Currently there's seventy nine point five million refugees worldwide just about 80 million refugees that have had to uh, leave their homes due to you know, starvation, economics, um, warfare, etc. Some of these are internally displaced, which means they're within their own country, but have had to pick up and move. And many of those have crossed borders. So the number of people having to leave their homes so far, that's like nine New York cities. It's a lot of people. Among those, there's about 2.6 million people living in refugee camps around the world. All the rest of them are just finding other ways to just make a go of it. So they just go somewhere. They're living, you know, packed, a bunch of people packed in an apartment. They're living in abandoned buildings. They're sleeping outside. They're just kind of making a go of it however they can. Uh, There's about 2.6 million people who are in refugee camps around the world and these are people who like really are destitute and just have absolutely nothing nowhere to go no place to live no money no nothing the conditions in these camps are often pretty bad Um, some of these are run by the united nations well most run by the united nations Um, they're underfunded they're understaffed the world has not placed adequate resources into this system to make it work So these 2.6 million people, they're living in tents, they have shared bathrooms, um, there's hunger, there's poor sanitation, there's illness, there's sexual assault, there's various violence, there's unaddressed mental health issues. Um, Despite these places being intended and designed as temporary shelter, like tents, many refugees end up in these camps for many years. Um, and it's this semi-permanent situation where they're just stuck in these very inadequate situations. So even this dynamic so far makes me unhappy. I think the world could do a lot better than this. I don't think a world with our kind of resources and wealth and prosperity in the world has to put up with people suffering like this. But. It does. And that's what tells me that the world is not paying close enough attention and caring enough. So if we can't yet deal with these 2.6 million refugees adequately, I worry how we're going to deal with 2 billion people. So I think we need to change our ways and have some new ways of thinking. There's been a lot of political conflict um, around the world dealing with my migration. So in the United States, where I live, um, immigration has been a huge political issue that people have fought over. Um, there's been immigrations coming in, immigrants coming in from Latin America. Um, Europe has had a similar dynamic. They've had a lot of mi- uh, migrants from the Middle East and Africa that are escaping um, you know, warfare and, and various poverty situations. Brexit that happened recently, where um, the UK left the European Union. I know there are many issues there, but one of the issues that got fought about was immigration, and there was a big concern there. So in these places that have had these uh, political fights about immigration, I'd like to see us all handle this differently. I don't think it's something that we need to just butt heads and fight about and polarize ourselves and do like for it or against it. I think there's ways around this, and I think if we have a different kind of uh, conversation that we can deal with people's concerns. I don't want, I, you know, because of this whole world dynamic I'm talking about, I'm, I'm very pro-migration, I believe we need to just let migration happen and facilitate this process, but I don't at all want to just steamroll the concerns of people who are worried about immigration, because I don't think that's helpful. So I, I don't want to just dismiss them, I want to just have reasonable conversation about these things so that we can find consensus on these issues so what i'm going to talk about now is what i've uncovered as i've really done some research on this in the show notes here i'm going to include links to some articles that i've looked at that i find compelling and you know i don't want us to just simply be spouting opinions and fighting with each other i'd like us to just look at facts and really dig in and um, solve problems together so One of the biggest concerns is, you know, around immigration, are these cultural frictions. Um, I think a lot of people in a, you know, receiving country of these people, they're worried about people different than them coming in, who are from a different race, different culture, have different traditions, and worried that their own culture will be somehow changed or weakened through this process. I would encourage people who have this fear to just have more faith in their own culture. Like, if your culture is strong and worth um, practicing or believing in, I think you should trust that it'll still be okay. Um, And in a lot of cases, people immigrating, they're coming because they want to be there. They're not coming because they want to change a country and make it all different they find something valuable about the place that you live in and they want to embrace that. Now, I think at the same time, though, it's important to allow immigrants to hold on to some of their traditions and their heritage. Like, I don't need to make people give up the way they eat, the religion they practice, the way they dress. Like, let people just do it. It'll be okay. And we can all work this out. So I'm saying this from my experience living in the United States, which is imperfect on this front. I'm not claiming that the U.S. has it all figured out and that we're great, but I think compared to some places in the world, we handle these things quite well. So for one example, New York City, which I know I mentioned earlier, New York City might be the most racially diverse place in the world. It's pretty astounding when you spend time there. You can find people from literally anywhere in the world. Like I would be surprised if there's a single country on this earth that is not represented there with um, immigrants. And yet the New York City, it thrives. It's a very thriving place. It's not a place where people fight about these things or, you know, there might be a little friction here and there, but you know, people aren't fighting about race, there's no violence, there's no warfare. It's like the strongest, one of the strongest economies in the world, New York City. It's quite thriving. And so I think that's just an important example to think about where if your country is going to take in immigrants, it's not necessarily going to hurt your economy, it's not necessarily going to uh, hurt your way of life. Like, things can work out quite well. You know, we have seen that in some places in the world. So, economics are a big concern around immigration. Um, In countries receiving immigrants, um, when people have trouble finding a good paying job, they end up blaming that on immigration. And I don't think that's appropriate. Um, there's bigger factors typically going on because we do have a changing economy these days. So there's automation which is taking a lot of jobs from people, Um, you know, jobs that humans used to do are now can be handled by computers or by robots. Um, There's manufacturing that has moved to poorer countries to take advantage of cheaper labor there. So it's not the immigrants coming into the country stealing the jobs that's the problem. It's that the jobs are going overseas to some other place. And then finally, there's remarkable wealth concentration um, in various developed countries. So um, the problem isn't the immigrants. It's that the, the money and the income and the wealth is going to wealthy people. So like one part of that is say a large corporation where the company CEO is making hundreds or maybe thousands of times the income of their frontline workers that are earning minimum wage. So it, it, you know there's that dynamic of just people not getting paid enough and the the resources in the economy not going to the average workers in the middle class. So. I think when people struggle in their own life and in their own career, um, they end up blaming immigration, but the research just does not support that, at least as far as what I've seen. And if any of you out there have different research that disagrees with this, I really hope that you'll send it to me, because I'd love to look at it. Um, I don't want to just sugarcoat any of this, I want to take people's concerns seriously. And if there are really legitimate economic concerns, like, I'd like to learn that. But as far as my look at it appears to be, um, there's this common perception that immigrants steal jobs from native workers, and also that they generally lower the wages in the economy by working for less than the standard wage. Now, I will agree that there is some of this that happens, but it is um, it's isolated, it's not a big thing on the economy. Basically, that is faced by the lowest skilled workers in the receiving country who do not have a high school education. Uh, because what happens is immigrant workers who do not know the native language that hurts their marketability on the job market that limits the types of jobs that they can get and so they will gravitate to more you know manual labor that requires less education um, and it can displace some of the lowest skilled workers who don't have education themselves i'm not going to dismiss this effect um it's worth dealing with i think the best way to deal with that is through education and job training so that those workers who are potentially displaced can have more skills and more resilience and more adaptability to find various jobs and stay employed Um, also a dynamic that happens is that when immigrants come in often native workers will gravitate to higher wage work, where speaking their native language is useful. And so there's enough jobs in the economy that people can shuffle around and sort of be okay and find something that works. So this modest drop in wages that some people have, the the lower skilled workers, it's offset by other growth in the economy. So immigrants are also consumers, so they're making money and they're spending money on their housing as they pay rent or buy homes, they're spending money on their food, they're spending money on consumer goods, they're spending money at local stores, and so that consumption actually helps other job growth to occur among those various businesses where they're spending money. Basically, you know, you you see the the immigrants get integrated into a local economy and other jobs are created. So what you see with immigration is that those immigrants are not necessarily a drain on the economy. They're actually supporting the economy with their work and with their consumption. Um, Some immigrants even create jobs. Because immigrants with more skills um, are actually creating businesses, they're entrepreneurial, they're um, finding new business opportunities, they're even hiring people, which then creates jobs. So they're not a drain on the economy, they actually get integrated into the economy and then help the economy grow. In some places in developed countries uh, or wealthier countries, there's a demographic issue where they have an aging population. So like in the United States, um, the older people who are considered baby boomers are now retiring and leaving the workforce and those jobs often need to get replaced by somebody and immigrants can help us replace those retirees. And there are other countries going through a similar demographic shift where um, there's, you know, elderly people leaving the workforce. So, and those elderly people, um, they need home care services, they need house cleaning, they need lawn mowing, and immigrants can help get this work done. So in many cases, or at least in some countries, immigrants may help the economy and help us get the work done. Like, we actually need more bodies here, more people doing the work. There's this other common perception people have is that incoming immigrants can overwhelm public services, that they're just going to consume welfare and education and healthcare and all this stuff, and it's going to hurt us all and become expensive. It's an interesting contradiction that I hear among people who are concerned about immigrants because sometimes they're concerned that immigrants are gonna work and take the jobs, and then sometimes they're concerned that immigrants are not gonna work and they're just gonna be lazy and take welfare. I don't see how those two hang together, but um, on this concern of consuming services, it's important to realize that immigrants are taxpayers. So even if they're working for cash under the table, um, they're paying sales tax whenever they buy anything. Um, But many of them are paying payroll taxes, you know, they're on the books, they're getting a paycheck and they're paying taxes. And those taxes usually are more than what they consume in public services. So, you know, the studies show that in most cases, governments run a net surplus with these people. Now, there are some exceptions, um, and one includes uh, local impacts like education, um, which at least in the United States are locally funded. In these cases though, that doesn't have to be a drain, like a smart national government can cover this local cost because at the national level, we see a net increase in tax revenues, more revenue coming in than what are paid on these immigrants' public services. So because that surplus happens at the national level, we can just shuffle around the money and get it to local school districts or other local services where they might be needed. So the solution, I don't think, is to solve those issues by blocking out immigrants, I think it just means we need more savvy governments that can monitor what's happening and react to these um, situations as they occur. So if a bunch of immigrants move into one town, we see a lot of extra students there, and that costs some money, then everybody's paying attention to that, and we can get the money there from the national government, and then it can hire the teachers or expand the school or, or whatever. Um, There's ways around this. So even though immigration is generally a a positive impact on the economy over time, there can be short-term challenges in helping people integrate. And I think to actually have immigrants benefit the economy in the strongest way we need to help them transition. So instead of just leaving them to flounder, if we actually really step in and help these immigrants, they'll, they'll help us, you know, so some countries though will need short term help to ease the transition, especially receiving countries that don't have a lot of money, like poorer countries. So we can provide help with housing, with education for immigrants, kids, um, to help immigrants learn the new language quickly so that they can be more employable um, and just find their way around. Help these people find jobs, give them assistance finding jobs, or even creating new businesses. Uh, there may be food assistance necessary. Um, I think the goal here is to create systems that help immigrants integrate quickly so that they can start contributing to the host country that they've entered. What I'd like to see is an international fund that acts like insurance and helps countries deal with these short-term effects of immigration because we know that there's going to be immigrants. We know that there could be potentially 2 billion people having to move. and currently i think the political setup around the world is that people avoid these refugees and try to keep them out because they're afraid of these impacts but if we don't deal with this problem the entire world is going to suffer we're going to have enormous economic damage and so i think the more prudent thing is to just be pragmatic know what's going to happen and deal with it so let's put in the money um, in managing the situation so that we don't have to pay even more money in the future as calamity happens and we're trying to um, adjust to it. So with this international fund, countries of the world would just put money in this fund and then that would go to receiving countries that take in these immigrants. And so some of that is to just help them do this integration process some of that is just going to incentivize them like you know some people they don't want to take the the immigrants other countries though might say hey you know we could use the revenue we need some money all right we'll take some immigrants because hey world you're going to give us money all right that that makes it work for us let's let's do that so it's a way to get countries to do this in a good way rather than forcing countries or having us all fight about it um let's just pay for it because it'll be cheaper in the long run than dealing with calamity. With this whole thing, what I hope is that we can start to plan for this now instead of just waiting for this to be a really chaotic scene. So, you know, I've talked about how in 50 years we may have up to 2 billion refugees. This does not mean, I hope you don't interpret this as, oh, well, we have 50 years to deal with it. Like, oh, we can wait a little while, we'll deal with it later. No, for two reasons. One is that the problem is so enormous that there's not gonna be quick solutions. We have to get started, because it'll take that long to figure out how to handle it and pay for it. But also, though, it's not like this is all gonna happen suddenly. It's not like nothing happens and then 50 years it all hits. You know, it's going to ramp up gradually from now, especially because currently it's already starting to happen. Like there are parts of the world where farming is becoming more difficult because weather is becoming more turbulent and more unpredictable and where local water sources are running out or rainfall is becoming more scarce. So there already are people starting to move because of these issues. And so this trend is just going to gradually keep ramping up and ramping up as the world heats. And so really what we should be doing now is starting this work of perfecting this process of dealing with migration. So countries around the world put in place their integration strategies for taking these people in. And also, we need to have international negotiations so that we're making agreements about where places of people are going to go. So we can already look at places we know it's going to happen. I mean, this hot zone, we know it's going to happen. Or or where sea level rise, it's just all the cities that are on coasts in the world. We can already predict which people are going to have to move. So we can wait and do nothing and have these people clobbered by a hurricane or flood or food shortage, or we can just plan for it. And that's going to take some international negotiation. I think we can be far more proactive than simply waiting until millions of people just show up at your border trying to get in. Um, I think that would be the irresponsible way let's plan now let's put some things in place also in addition to dealing with migration from one country to the other there's a lot that the world could do to help some of these people stay where they are or at least slow that um, migration trend so a lot of the places that are um that are going to be hit by this high heat they're poor and so that poverty is a factor in them picking up and moving because they can't make a go of it in their home country so you know the process is people are going to leave when they reach a point where they're starving they're hungry the conditions around them are horrible Um, if we can help the conditions in their home country be better then we can at least slow that migration process and maybe some of them can stay. You know, we can deal with these issues of food and water scarcity by, for instance, helping people grow, uh, build greenhouses where they can grow their food in a covered, sheltered way. Um, We can improve irrigation systems so they, they can have easier, better access to water. Um, and those water systems are more efficient so that there's less water waste, um, because water will become incredibly scarce. We could help people build, uh, construct buildings that are more likely to withstand the heat and be more temperature efficient, um, or more able to withstand storms or withstand flooding. Um, also we can... Put systems in place to help people rebuild more easily after storms happen. Because they know we know that they will happen. And so we might as well put some place, some plans in place, have some agreements about what we're going to do when that happens. Um, we can send people air conditioners um, so that people can put an air conditioner in their home or their business. And, yeah, it's going to suck to not be able to go outside, but, you know, at least indoors, people can live. Um, many of these countries, they're too poor to afford air conditioners. Like, they may not have electricity. They don't have running water. Like, these places, you, you, you know, you can't expect them to just dig in their pocket for some money to do that. So, um And I would encourage us very strongly, if we're going to rely on air conditioning in these places, let's let it be solar powered, please, because it would be pretty silly to try to react to the warming climate by burning more fossil fuels to keep people cool. It's just that would be a silly dynamic. Um, and then one other thing that we can do to deal with the food shortages is deal with those systems that can help them import food more affordably. So um, if food is expensive, they're going to starve and they can't grow it themselves. So we may help them um, find other things that they can do for a living to make money. Facilitate trade between countries so that um, these places that are too hot to grow um, can still eat and and do it in a way that doesn't uh, wreck them or their economy. So from all this, I hope that you're understanding that we're up against an enormous problem and i've just gone through a lot of facts and figures and public policy approaches and economics and such um this could feel intimidating for us i I feel intimidated by it it's pretty enormous but i like to think that humans are savvy enough and innovative enough that we can figure out a way I think the way we get through this is um, by learning to share, by learning to care about our neighbors, Um, and as we do that it in turn will help ourselves because if we let this go unaddressed um, it will be horrible for all of us. There's this fear I have that we're going to postpone action on this too long the flow of refugees will quicken and overwhelm us and my concern is that then as people feel overwhelmed um, they start to shut down they start to block people out and just let them die and let them suffer That's my biggest fear in all this. And that would obviously be bad for the dying, suffering um, billion people or more. But I think it would be bad for all of us. I think there's a a psychological toll that this takes, or a spiritual toll that it takes, um, if we were to simply block out over a billion people and just let them die. For context or for comparison, in World War II, we lost 85 million people that died, including both military and civilians. In World War One, we lost 25 million. So between the two world wars, a bit over 100 million people died. In a couple of the most cataclysmic events that the human race has ever seen. But now, with this climate emergency, we're dealing with 10 times that. Not just 100 million people that died in the World Wars, but over a billion people that could die if we don't let them move. So something I'm really worried about is just what that would do to all of us in our heart to um, turn a blind eye to that. I think there's already too much in the world of people um, in more comfortable places turning a blind eye to the suffering in the world. I think we have to do a lot of mental acrobatics in order to justify that being okay. And I think it involves turning off our empathy in sort of just slicing off a part of our heart um, in order to witness that and not feel it day to day so as we have all this ramp up and have potentially a billion or more people die because we don't take action I just worry what it's going to do to our souls and um, Our collective sense of ourselves and I'd rather would make a world that we can feel proud of I don't I don't want to live in a world where we have to feel embarrassed that we let a billion people die because we were too lazy or too busy to think ahead and do something about it I want to live in a world we can feel proud of. So, there's a couple key concepts that I would love for you to remember and take with you if you're willing. One is that we are about to face the biggest demographic shift in human history and the biggest migration in history. So, we should start preparing. Number two, if we ignore this, the world economy may break. And number three, immigration can be good for the economy. Planning and international assistance can make that even better. So, thanks for joining me today. I appreciate you listening through with all this. Um, I hope you'll join me for other presentations. And until next time, let's try to be the best people we can be. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening, but you're not done yet. We can't change the world if we keep the joy of saving the human race to ourselves. Help me spread the word and help this movement grow. Please subscribe to the show, both the podcast and the YouTube channel. Leave ratings or reviews, which encourages others to listen. Share this show with others on your social media. Even better, just tell a friend about it and have a good conversation about the state of the world. These things really make a difference. I hope you can help the show grow and reach a larger audience. I'm grateful for your help. Thank you. And please stay in touch with me. I love to get feedback, suggestions, and questions go to the website at joyofsavingthehumanrace.com. At the website, you'll learn more about the show, and you can sign up to get occasional email updates. Thanks to Moby for the show's theme music, and thanks to you for being here. All right, we're done for today. Be well. I'll talk to you soon.